At uh, our place at the moment, we seem to be going through one of those phases where everything seems to be breaking. Do you ever go through those sorts of phrases? I hate them. It started with the car, so that had to go to the mechanic. Uh, then the dishwasher packed it in, so in comes another repairman. Uh, then one of the hot plates on the oven stopped working. Uh, the exhaust fan in the bathroom has gone. Uh, the, compu- the printer for our uh, computer is now starting to make these really strange noises. Uh, the piano's got this really unusual squeak happening in it that I can't figure out where that's coming from. And the other day I noticed that the telly, worst of all, was starting to get this occasional flickering thing. I hate those sorts of things. It's almost scared of what's going to go next. And if you've ever gone through one of those sorts of phases in your household, you'll know that it's not just the inconvenience, you'll know it's not just the expense of getting all the stuff fixed or replaced, it's also the frustration, is it not, of trying to get people to do what they said they do. Someone says they'll come around and have a look at the problem. They never turn up. Someone else says that they'll ring you back with the quote. They never ring. Someone else says, oh, well, when the part comes in, I'll get back to you. You never hear from them again. That is really annoying. When people just do not do what they said they do. When they make a commitment, but then they don't honour it. Now, friends, some of you here this morning know that only too well. Because for you, it hasn't been the inconvenience of a tradesperson not turning up. For you, it's maybe been a close friend who had said that they'll be there for you but who hasn't been there for you. A marriage partner who said that they'd love you for better or for worse but who haven't. A mum or a dad who has walked out on your family and you've been left to try and pick up the pieces. Friends, when we don't keep our word to each other, when we fail to honour our obligations, it opens a world of pain. And in our Bible reading this morning, Malachi calls this sort of thing breaking faith. It's what the passage is all about. Verse 10, verse 11, verse 14, verse 15, verse 16, they all have this phrase, breaking faith. Or to put it another way, breaking your promises, reneging on your obligations, just not doing what you said you'd do. And in this section of Malachi, God says that it must not be like that amongst his people. See, over the past few weeks, we've been noticing that Malachi is written at a time when Israel are not honouring the greatness of God. They have failed to see the greatness of God's love for them. They have failed to see the greatness of God's authority over them. And today, uh, Malachi adds to this by pointing out that Israel have also failed to see the greatness of God's faithfulness towards them and it shows in the fact that they are breaking faith with each other for when Israel break faith it betrays the fact that they don't really know the God who they claim to be following see look with me at verse 10 it's the opening verse of our reading it's a key verse which sets up the whole scene and it's a verse that draws on God being a covenant keeping God verse 10 Have we all not one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Now the NIV translation, which I think most of us have, it tries to help us out a little bit with that verse by giving that Father, that first Father, a capital F, which makes you think that's a reference to God. I'm not so sure that's the case. The original text doesn't have a capital. And given the later phrase in that verse about the covenant of our fathers... 
I'm thinking that the one father Malachi's got in mind is in fact Abraham. And that this verse is actually taking Israel back to Genesis to think about when God made a covenant with Father Abraham, when God made a contract with Abraham, when God promised Abraham that he'd have lots of descendants and that God would make them into his special people. And so you see, verse 10, I think, is a reflection on God's faithfulness to, uh, to, to Israel. Have we not one father? In other words, aren't we all descendants of Abraham through God's promises to him? Did not God create us? In other words, aren't we as a nation created through God faithfully working out his promises? Aren't we the result of God keeping, cov- keeping his covenant? Well, then why the heck are we not covenant-keeping people? Why do we profane the covenant, covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? And you see, at the time of Malachi, this was a particularly piercing question. I mean, here we are, we're at the end of the Old Testament, and Israel should have been able to look back over her history and see that, heck yeah, God has been remarkable at keeping his end of the deal. Through good times, through bad times, through difficult times, God has always been there keeping up his end of the covenant, which adds force to the the argument. Gosh, by now you'd think that Israel will have realised that faithfulness is a big part of who God is. They should have realised that faithfulness matters a great deal to God, that honouring commitments is a very big issue for him. And therefore failing to honour our commitments, well, that only goes to show that we don't know God very well at all. And you see, I think that's important to bear in mind in these verses because This is a passage which is far more than a moralistic, you shouldn't break your word type passage. This is far deeper than that. This is far more relational than that. This is a passage founded on the idea that if Israel are unfaithful in their dealings with each other, it actually reflects that they don't actually get God at all. It portrays the fact that they don't really know the God whom they claim to be following. And that's what makes it so serious. And that's why God is so forceful in what he now goes on to say. Because basically what he goes on to say is he lists off two of the most serious examples of Israel breaking faith. Now, I mean, at one level, it's everywhere. Verse 10 is very broad in its description. Israel are simply breaking faith with one another. In other words, there is widespread general dishonesty. People are not keeping their word to each other. Trusts are being broken. People are making hasty, empty promises which they then forget about if it just becomes too inconvenient for them. People shake on a deal but very quickly renege on the deal if it's not in writing and something better comes along. And it's against that backdrop of breaking faith that two particular sorts, the two most serious sorts of covenant breaking, are now singled out for attention. The first one involves marrying non-Israelites, verse 11. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing is being committed in Israel and Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord, the sanctuary the Lord loves, by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, in that verse, God describes the marriage of an Israelite to a non-Israelite as a breaking of faith, which is a curious sort of thing, really, because marriage is, in fact, when we promise faithfulness, isn't it? Yet in this case, 
This marriage is actually described as an act of unfaithfulness. Now, the reason for that is because in the Old Testament, God made it perfectly clear that he didn't want Israelites to marry non-Israelites who followed other gods. And the reason he continually gave for that was because it would have the effect of turning their hearts away from him. The effect would be that it would loosen and weaken and compromise their commitment to him. And it certainly did on more than one occasion in the Old Testament. At exactly the time, pretty well exactly the time Malachi is writing this, Nehemiah chapter 13 talks about how widespread this practice was and how distressing it was to God. Because you see, to turn around and marry the daughter of a foreign god was for an Israelite to break faith with one another in the sense that it dishonoured their commitment to keep Israel pure and holy as God's people. It was effectively saying that their desire for personal intimacy is more important than their obligation to help Israel stay loyal to Yahweh. And on top of that, it was just an act of outright disobedience because God had said, don't do it. And so in verse 11, God calls that choice a detestable thing. And in verse 12, he says that those who do it with their eyes open are asking for God to turn his back on them. They have broken faith. Now, friends, they're pretty strong words. And I suspect that they're words which raise a few issues for us as well. I mean, you and I, we are not Israelites, nor do we need to be. As New Testament Christians, we have been born into great freedom as God's children. In particular, we don't need to be part of a certain geographic nation like Israel anymore. But the obvious question that I think floats up in a passage like this is, does God still feel this strongly about his people marrying his people? Does God still feel this strongly for, say, a Christian to marry a non-Christian? Does God see that as a detestable thing because it weakens the bonds, say, within a church family? Well, it has to be admitted that the idea of a Christian marrying a non-Christian doesn't really come up in the New Testament very much at all. That may say something in itself. And when the topic does come up, the language is certainly not as strong or as forceful as here is Malachi. And maybe that does have something to do with the fact that uh, we don't have to be part of a defined geographic people anymore. Mind you, having said that, the New Testament does reinforce the same basic thrust that God's people are to marry God's people. In 1 Corinthians 11, for example, referring to widowers who are free to marry again, it says that they can marry whoever they wish, but only in the Lord. In other words, the New Testament says that if the choice of a marriage partner is still before us, do not marry someone who does not love the Lord Jesus with all their heart. And in that respect, the same basic direction of these verses in Malachi is maintained. It's the idea that we are to be faithful in our commitments, in our commitments to each other, but also, more importantly, in our commitment to God. We are not to treasure romance more than we treasure obedience to God. We are not to value intimacy more than we value obeying our Heavenly Father. But we need to move on because God's not finished. There's another aspect to marriage that he wants to address here. Verse 13. Another thing you do, 
You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Notice there, there's that covenant word again. It's making the point that marriage is a contract. It is a public, formal pledge. And so to divorce our marriage partner is to unambiguously go back on our word. In fact, as God says in verse 14, the matter is made all the worse because God himself is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. That phrase is tapping into the idea that God is not a passive bystander in a marriage. Uh, In a marriage, particularly between uh, people who are followers of God, he is there confirming it. He is there joining them together. And in fact, in the New Testament, this whole level of God's involvement is amped up even further because he explains there in passages like Ephesians that marriage is granted the great dignity of being a model of God's own covenant with his church. Roll it all up. God reckons marriage matters big time because when we renege on it, it not only shows that we don't keep our word, it is dishonouring to God himself. As if promising something formally before him is something that you can go back on. God feels strongly about this. In America earlier this year, a law firm was trying to drum up business, so they ran a high-profile billboard series of ads in the city of Chicago which read, Life's short. Get a divorce. Here in Malachi, God's putting up his own billboard. Verse 16. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. This is not something that he is flippant or casual about. I hate divorce, and I hate a man covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. Second half of that verse is a bit out there, isn't it? Sounds like all of a sudden something right out of the blue is being thrown in there as if God's got some other person in mind that he feels strongly about. I suspect what's happening there, though, is that God is using a very common image of the day to explain why he feels so strongly about divorce. You see, at the time, to cover your blanket, you cover your garment over someone, it was a common image of the day of a family unit which was covered in the protection and care of the, of the father. And so I cover Sue and Felicity and Olivia and Stuart with my garment, is how it might have been said back then. So in verse 16, God is pointing out that he that he feels strongly about divorce because it brings violence against those whom you are meant to protect. Divorce wreaks havoc. Divorce wreaks destruction through a family. Now the ESV, which some of you have, have got an interesting option. It reads, For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord the God of Israel, covers his blanket with violence, says the Lord of hosts. That's an interesting, slightly different slant, which is quite possible, where the hate bit isn't attributed so much to God as to the man who acts in divorce. But the point is still the same. God is depicting divorce as a terrible, divisive, violent thing that brings a lot of collateral damage, 
God views divorce in the same category as physical abuse within a marriage. That's hard. And I think almost everyone I know who's had anything to do with a divorce and who has been through them themselves, they pretty well say the same thing. They hate it too. It has been one of the worst times of their life for no one comes out of it unscathed. It is incredibly painful. And across our three churches, we have many precious people who are carrying the the beatings and the bruises that come out of a divorce. And it's for that reason that that as I've prepared this talk, a very big part of me has wanted to add qualifications at almost every step of the way. A very big part of me has wanted to point out that getting a divorce is not an unforgivable sin. To say that this passage is not everything that, that the Bible says about divorce. That I think the Bible does permit it in certain specific situations. To add in that marrying a non-Christian is not an unforgivable sin. God can convert non-Christian partners. And if you have a non-Christian partner, God certainly doesn't want you to separate from them. The trouble with all those sorts of truths, as true as they are, we must not use them to crawl out from under the authority of what God is saying to us this morning. He feels really strongly about marriage, about who we marry and about staying married. And we must not slip out from under the force of these verses with a whole lot of uh, my situation's different type excuses. Mind you, we must not also use these verses as a weapon. These are not verses to self-righteously sit in judgment of other people whose specific situation we usually know precious little about. This is a passage about every single one of us looking into our own hearts and thinking about our own personal resolve to keep faith in the commitments we make. Not least of all in the most important commitments of all. Who will marry and once we are married. Because if we're not prepared to keep our word in those sorts of things, what does that say about the integrity of our word? And more to the point, what does it say about the extent to which we know God? Because remember how it's all set up? God is a covenant-keeping God. And he expects his people to be that too. It's a thought that is very much repeated in the New Testament. For example, jump with me across to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Just heading head right in the Bible for a while. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a a passage where the Apostle Paul is explaining to the Corinthian church why he has not visited them when he said that he would. It turned out that circumstances prevented him from visiting and Paul is very keen for them to know that when he had said he was going to visit that he didn't say that lightly. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly way so that in the same breath I say yes, yes and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful... Our message to you is not yes and no. 
For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, wasn't yes and no, but in him it's always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Now that's a remarkable little passage, uh, particularly because of what it says about Jesus. He's the answer. He's the fulfilment of all God's promises. But I want you to notice why Paul is pointing that out to the church here. It's because the coming of Jesus exemplifies just how faithful God is. He did not even withhold his son so as to keep his word. He went to extreme measures so as to keep his word. And so Paul says, as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is faithful as well. And we strive for faithfulness in what we say to you. We don't say it lightly, because like father, like son, like God, like us. Which is pretty much what our passage from Malachi is all about in a nutshell. God is faithful. And if we're his people, we strive for the same. And if we don't, if we fail to value something to the extent to which God values it, it only betrays the fact that we don't know God very well at all. And that's why he takes it so seriously. Friends, we need to aim for radical, out-of-the-ordinary faithfulness. We need to be going to extraordinary measures to protect our marriages. In fact, we need to go to extraordinary measures in all our dealings with all people. We need to be shooting for a faithfulness that will honour God and that will cause people to sit up and take notice. Let's not make hasty promises to do something if we don't believe we're going to do it. Before we commit to something, let's think through long-term implications of time and effort and inconvenience so that when we do commit, we do it thoughtfully and reliably because we've counted the cost. Let's record our commitments somewhere in writing or electronically so that they don't slip our mind. Let's get other people to help us stay accountable to them. Let's not change our mind because something suddenly becomes inconvenient. Let's not promise things that will simply make us look good. Let's not say we'll pray for someone unless we're going to pray for them. Let's not say we'll be somewhere unless we're going to be there. Let's not put our name on a roster and then forget about it. Let's keep faith. Because that's what our God does to extraordinary levels. And we don't want to profane the covenant of our Lord Jesus Christ by breaking faith with one another. Let me pray. Father God, your faithfulness is great and we would really love ours to be the same. Father, by, the, by your word and spirit, please shape us so that we would be a people always committed to do what we say. Father, we ask that especially in our marriages, that you would help us to nurture them and protect them. Father, we pray that in all our dealings, we would be the sort of honest people who do what we commit to so that people would look at our lives and, bring on, and give honour to you, that they would reflect on the extraordinary faithfulness of our God. Amen.